0: We're going to be in Psalm 98 as we study and hear God's Word and, and anticipate the coming of our Christ. The night that Jesus was born was unique in all of history. It wasn't that God hadn't done other miraculous and marvelous things. I mean, He had been working all throughout the Old Testament to prove His power and to demonstrate His presence and to make His eternal nature evident in the world. He had been working in marvelous and miraculous ways throughout all of history. I mean, for example, just the, the protection, the provision, and the installation of the nation of Israel. A, a nation that by all imagination shouldn't even exist still today. As small as it is, as many times as it's been invaded, as much trouble as it's seen, but yet it is sustained. As it's established, he speaks to a prophet His prophet Moses, this man that he had chosen from among all people to lead his people out, he speaks to them, and speaks to him through a burning bush. and calls him into a service and sends him to to lead his people out from under the burden and oppression of, of Egypt. That doesn't even take into consideration that the second hand doesn't tick if God never says, Let there be light. The very ticking of each second is only because he put it into motion. But still... The very nature of the incarnation, the very nature of the night that we celebrate, the the night that Jesus was born, that that, that this almighty God, the God who had power to speak this creation into existence, that the sovereign God who who has all authority, that rules all things, the, the, the eternal God who has always been, the fullness of this God was pleased to dwell in bodily form. That is miraculous. It's worthy of remembering, remor- worthy of celebrating. This night that the angels appeared in the night sky and, and, and sang his praises, announced his birth to an audience of lowly shepherds. A very unique moment in the history of mankind. It's in that moment that, like no other moment, we really were able to call him Emmanuel. He'd always been here. He's always been clearly seen and made clear and made evident. The book of Romans tells us that. But in those 33 years that he walked on the face of the earth, God was really with us in ways that we had never experienced and sometimes I think we wish we could experience them that way even now. And so we celebrate by remembering that Jesus did come to be with us. We get together every year and celebrate the incarnation of our Christ. We get together every year and, and we set aside the, the sermon series that we're in. We set aside whatever it is that we're working on, the, 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 the busyness of life. Even in our work schedules, like this week between Christmas and New Year's there's almost going to be no production happening across many businesses and what does happen will be at a much a markedly decreased rate than what usually happens because somewhere in the whole scheme of the way that our world works we recognize that the celebration and the recognition of the incarnation is, is worthwhile. Even if people won't confess it and admit it, it still affects them. and And we're no different. Every year we come and we, we, we set this aside, we set this night aside to remember the birth of our Savior. But for us, it's never just about the birth of our Savior. As important as that is, as, as miraculous and unique as that is. Would knowing that our Savior was born matter nearly as much to us if we didn't know that he was coming again? There's a contention, I've, uh, I, uh, something I've been contending with you and trying to demonstrate to you that, that, yes, we need to celebrate the incarnation and the miraculous events that have taken place because he came, he lived a perfect life, he died a sacrificial death, he rose victoriously. But what if the best of things had already happened and weren't to be experienced ever again? The reason that we can celebrate and remembering this is because we are also anticipating that our King Comes. Our King is coming. So we don't just gather to celebrate the incarnation. We gather to celebrate all that the incarnation entails. And that means that there will be a day in which we ourselves will stand with him and see him with our own eyes and touch him with our own hands. And and like the psalm is going to call us to we will be filled with joy that is inexpressible, the joy that it cannot be contained. And so I would encourage you to follow along in the Scripture as I read Psalm 98, verses 1 through 9, to get a taste, to get a glimpse of the joy that is ours because our King has come and because our King is coming. Now sing to the Lord a new song, For he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of God. Do you notice that only God is working there? It is God's work to do this. It is God's work to make this known. It is God's work to ensure that it is completed. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Break forth into joyous song and sing praises. Sing praises to the Lord with the lyre, with the lyre and the sound of melody, with trumpets and the sound of the horn. Make a joyful noise before the King of the Lord. This is a call to worship in light of all the majestic and powerful and miraculous things that our God has done. He is worthy to be praised. And not simply with voices, but of every faculty that we can, that we can gather. The, the, the music of instruments and the shouting of our voices, the, the clapping of hands. Our God is worthy to be praised. Let the sea roar in all that fills it. Let the world and those who dwell in it. Let the rivers clap their hands. Let the hills sing songs for joy before, before the Lord. For he comes. To judge the earth, he will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. The birth of Christ was a unique moment in history. Such a unique moment in history that has captivated the attention of people of every generation. And as I mentioned earlier, I mean, it even affects us on a broader scale. People who don't celebrate the birth of Christ are still affected by the celebration of the birth of Christ and our whole Country, even, even across the world in an international way, the, 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 the production, the exercise of just daily rituals slows down as this time of year comes near. And it's gathered us, it, 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 it's gotten such a hold of us, I should say, that there have been poems and stories and, and songs written to commemorate the birth of our Savior. And in these, in, in these poems and songs, it's, it's, it's celebrating. It's, it's always speaking back and remembering that he has come. And these traditions are established. And in, in one of these traditions, the singing of carols, I mean, we've already sung some tonight. There's this whole genre of music that's been established just simply to enable us to express the celebration of the, the Savior that's come. And we know that. And we know in Springfield, if you're from this area, you know about the, the genre of Christmas music. we got a couple of radio stations that are kind enough to, in November, the, sometime in November, they decide, well, let's not play anything but Christmas music. And we know, of all, we know all about it. And one of the most popular songs was written by a guy named Isaac Watts in the year 1719. We sing it every year, sing it multiple times. You'll hear it all over the radio. It, it's, it's hugely popular. And it's a celebration celebration of, of, of a, a call to joy, joyous worship. In fact, that's why he wrote it, to inspire the church to worship with joy. That song is called Joy to the World. There are a lot of little pieces of information about this song floating around out there. I couldn't verify them all. For example, the, the original tune that it was pinned to, to be sung with was uh, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. That's, that was the story that was told, I don't know if it's true or not, but I mean, it does fit. You know the song? Come thou fount of every blessing. You know the song? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. You see? It it really does fit. Back in 1719, when Isaac Watts wrote the song, he didn't write the song to be sung the way we sing it today. He He wrote it to be sung in that way. In a very methodical and and, uh, contemplative way. It was a little over a hundred years later that a guy named Lowell Mason had heard a song from Handel, you know, of of Handel's Messiah. I don't know that it was out of Handel's Messiah, but but he heard a song that was written by Handel that that he appreciated and it inspired him to take the words of joy to the world and apply them to this more joyous, more boisterous melody that we sing it today. Joy to the world. You know, it's it's a much different feel, much different tune. And I know, already, you're thinking, there's a reason he doesn't lead worship. (laughs) And you're right, there is. But in the mix of all these little facts and all these little things that I came to see, I think one thing that was demonstrated that we could all agree on was, this is probably one of the most popular songs that we've sung around Christmas. One article I read claimed that it was the, as of the late 20th century, that's like the 1990s for you, for those of you that may not be familiar with the 20th century, uh, it was the most published Christmas hymn in North America. It's been sung by stars, you know, very popular, prominent people included on their Christmas albums like Bing Crosby, Aretha Franklin, Mariah Carey, and groups like Pentatonics. In fact, you can go listen to Pentatonix. It's an amazing version of it. They sound really good as they, as they uh, harmonize and, and sing that song. The song's made appearances in, in movies, like Disney's Christmas Carol. Scrooge is walking down the road, and there's carolers out on the street singing joy to the world. And they see him coming, and they shut up because he's Scrooge. But Scrooge has learned his lesson, and he joins in. And then there's the infamous scene. Many of you may know the movie that uh, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation as Clark Griswold is looking to light his lights. You know, the, 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 the monstrous set of Christmas lights that he puts on his house. And he has the whole family gathered. He asks for a drum roll. I think it's rusty. Give me a drum roll, please. Something along that lines. Joy to the world. And he goes to plug it in and nothing happens. What you may not realize, and what we often don't understand and even think about, because we've so thoroughly drawn this song into our Christmas tradition, is it's not written and it's not focused on Christmas at all. Isaac Watts didn't pin this song to prop up the celebration of Christmas. In fact, you'll notice it's completely void of the mention of virgins, donkeys, mangers, Wise men and shepherds. There's not once a mention of a stable and an inn with no room or a silent night. See, Isaac Watts was thinking about the coming of his king. And in the same way that he wrote that psalm, thinking about the coming of the king, This psalm that we've just read, in fact, Joy to the World, is a paraphrase. It's a a song drawn right from these verses. But in the same way that it wasn't written to, to look at Christmas or celebrate Christmas or be tied to some Christmas tradition or Christmas celebration, this psalm, which has often been read at Christmas, is not intended to just point us to Christmas. Rather, this psalm both remembers the powerful works of our God, And looks forward to what he will do. If I were to summarize this in a point in which that's what I intend to do because I'm here to preach, right? And build a point that you can take home and contemplate and consider. I would say it like this. Our present joy is established in the work our God has completed. And it endures because of the promise of what our King will yet accomplish. Our common thread that, that, that I've tied all the way through this Advent sermon series to, for you is that, that for many of us today, we live in a world that is racked with pain and facing injustice and struggling just to get by into another day. And for many of us, I've have, I have contended with you that for, for many of us, we are not experiencing the joy that God intends for us to enjoy because we are so busy looking back without ever looking forward. I don't want to diminish the call to look back. I don't want to take away from us the the need and how important it is for us to look back, but I want to add to that the importance of looking forward to remembering that what has been done is not the end, but what is coming is yet to be celebrated and rejoiced in. In this psalm, we see that woven together, maybe more beautifully, more expressively than I could ever imagine doing myself. We see it in three tenses, three stanzas, but 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 really three three focuses or views on time. He opens, the psalmist opens with a, a look back. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song, for he has done, it's a past tense, he has done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm have worked salvation for him. The Lord has made known. These are all past tense. Tense, five things, marvelous things he's done. His right hand and holy arm have worked salvation. He has made it known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness. He has remembered his steadfast love. These things have already happened. For the psalmist, there's things that he has in his mind. There's pictures and, and experiences and stories that have been told throughout the generations that he has in mind as he thinks about this. But what we know about prophecy in the, in the Bible is oftentimes the, 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 the thoughts and the memories and the, and the ways that it's, it, it's expressed is that the future things are also expressed with a past tense reality because when God's involved, they are as certain to happen as if they'd already happened. But I have no doubt but as the psalmist writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he remembers, he knows the mighty work of his God, and that gives way then in verses four through really down through uh, verse eight this present tense expression of joy, what God has done is reason to rejoice, to express our joy, to worship, to sing praises, play music in celebration of it, to to even even the the creation is personified. That the sea roars and and the world and all those who dwell in it, the rivers clap their hands. There's this beautiful expression that all things that were created can't help but give glory and give praise and give honor when they consider the works of God. And then he ends, the, the, the book end to the beginning, he ends with this explanation, exclamation, not of what God has done, but what God will do before the Lord. All this worship is offered before the Lord, for he comes. It's a look to what's going to happen. It's a look to what hasn't happened yet. He will judge the world. There's this this picture of, 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 of what has happened in order to facilitate us understanding what is to be. I mean, just consider it for a moment. I mean, who looks at the judgment of God and says, yes, let's rejoice. We don't typically tie those two ideas together. But our king is coming and he is coming to set all things right, and it will be by His good standard and his fair standard and his, his expression of what all things should be. That is a reason to rejoice. This psalm, it fits so well at Christmas and Advent. Yes, it does, because it is why singing joy to, it, 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 it's, it's looking back and looking forward. it's why singing joy to the world fits so well at Christmas because it's tied to these words that look back and look forward. And the truth is, is that this was what all of Christian history, this is what all of the history of God's people has looked like. It didn't just start because we started celebrating Christmas. Maybe most notably, you see this in the Exodus story. The Israelites, the, the Israelites looking back on what God had done and looking forward to what he would do as he led them into the promised land. But it begins even before that. Imagine the stories that Adam and Eve told their children as they lived post-garden. They're the ones that we know what happened in creation because they told those stories. We understand what was. We understand the power of what God was able to do. We understand what the world looked like in some form when it still had that new car smell. We have some glimpse of that because the story was told and passed down. Imagine the stories of what Adam and Eve told their children and passed on down so that Moses could write it. Imagine the stories that, that, that they told as they remembered the power of God, the presence of God walking with him in the garden. And imagine the stories they told as they even expressed the gospel from the moment that they had been cursed as a result of their sin. In Genesis 3.15, God speaking says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, there is a reality that from the moment of, of, of rebellion, the moment that man stepped into sin, that God had a plan. And mankind has always now been able to look back on his power and look back on his provision, look back on his protection, and then look forward to the fulfillment of the promises that he made, even starting there in Genesis chapter 3, even starting there in the, in the lowest moment of human history at that point. And it goes on. The stories told by parents to their children after they had spent forty years wandering around in, in the wilderness, Israel had been led out by God, led out of Egypt and out of slavery and bondage. They'd been led out by God in powerful and miraculous ways they come to the edge of the Red Sea and they're, they're fraught with fear. They think they're going to be destroyed by Egypt. And, and God says, no, Moses, here, here's the way. You step out there. And the sea parted and they crossed on dry ground. And when the, when the Egyptians walked into the water and the last Israelite was out, the water closed in and they were delivered. Delivered. They even began to sing a song because of it. A song that gives us a glimpse of the joy that's expressed in Psalm 98. Your right hand, O Lord, in glorious power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. The power of God had enabled them to be delivered. It had made them safe. It had delivered them from danger. It had destroyed their enemy. But it didn't quit working then, did it? But yet, when they faced the risks on the other side of the Jordan, when they faced the the power of the people that were in the promised land, they were afraid. And rather than rejoicing and rather than remembering, they cowered in fear. So they got to wander around in a desert for 40 years. But God was with them. Their shoes didn't wear out. Their clothes didn't wear out. They had food to eat and water when necessary. You see, God provided in amazing and powerful ways. So that after Moses' leadership had ended, Moses had died and Joshua was now in charge. And he had been called to lead uh, after Moses they are again facing that moment where God is saying, It is time for you to go into the promised land and take it as your own. And here they stand at the edge of a body of water, the Jordan River. How are we going to cross? And God says, Take the Ark of the Covenant, and the priests are to walk into the middle of the river, and the river, when they did, stopped. And a body of water commanded by our sovereign God quit being where it naturally would be on its own. And they crossed on dry ground. And in the middle of that process, God says, all right, I want 12 of your people to go back and take stones out of the the riverbed of the Jordan. I want them to bring those stones out. They will be stones of remembrance, such that when Joshua now is is talking to his people on the other side of the Jordan, now standing in the promised land, he says to them and tells them about these stones of remembrance. In Joshua 4, verses 21 through 24, he said to the people of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones? mean, then you shall let your children know Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever." And what is implied there, what's what's packed into that, just as tightly and, and, and I think clearly as it is in Psalm 98, is that God wants us to remember what he's done to affect how we now look forward to the days that still are to come. And since the fall into sin, this has always been the standing of God's people. This has been our perspective looking back with great hope as we look forward. So yes, we remember and we celebrate the Incarnation. We absolutely should. It is unique in all of human history. And so it's no small, it's no small blip on the radar screen of history. I mean, it's a major event in the in the scheme of redemption. We preach the cross of Christ and Him crucified. We preach about the resurrection. But we do that and we must continue to do that without neglecting the promise that He is coming. See, it was never Jesus' intent for us to simply look back. In fact, just hours before he died, he's gathered with his disciples. Judas has already gone out from the upper room. He's gathered with his disciples, and he's explaining to them how he is going to face the cross. He says to them, do not let your hearts be troubled. In my Father's house are many rooms he begins to speak about what he is going to do and he says i wouldn't tell you this if i wasn't going to prepare that i was going to prepare a place for you if i wasn't coming back to get you even in the moment the seconds the hours just before he would be arrested and crucified jesus wanted to encourage his followers with the reality that that is not the end that he is coming and he says this in John 15, 11, after he's taught them these things and then expressed to the, the, the gospel in, in, in view of a, a vineyard, he says these words to them, these things I have spoken to you, this is John 15, 11, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So I just wonder as we sit here in this Christmas season, I'm certain that you've already had parties. I'm certain that you've already had things added to your calendar and moments of your day that you felt stressed out and out of control and wishing that the, that the season was just over. I just wish things would get back to normal. I just wonder, is it possible that we are not experiencing the joy that God intends for us because we are spending so much time looking back without remembering the promise that there is much ahead of us. Our King is coming. The best has not yet come. There is a feast awaiting us. There is a moment awaiting us in which we will stand in His presence and never to be separated where tears will be wiped away and death will be no more. He did not tell us these things so that we would simply simply know them. He told us these things that we might be Filled with his joy. See, our coming joy will no longer be stifled by the distance that we feel today. We will be like his disciples who walked by him, who heard him, and, and watched him work in powerful and miraculous ways. Our coming joy will no longer be stifled by the curse of sin. Even in this psalm, we see the glimpse of it. The, even, even the creation feels the relief from the curse Paul, writing in the book of Romans, speaks about that the the, the created order, the creation, groans under the weight of our curse. God, speaking to Adam and Eve in the midst of his curse, speaks about the, the consequences of our sin and how it drastically affects the creation. That man will no longer just get fruit from it, but by our labor we'll find thorns and thistles, and any fruit will be by hard work. It is suffering because of our sin. But in this psalm, we see the lifting of that curse, the the, the freedom from that curse, that even, even the creation has given way to praise him. Our coming joy will no longer be stifled by the lack of justice. If there's anything we can recognize in our current day, it is a lack of justice. Even in the complaints of a lack of justice, there is a lack of justice it's why those screaming for tolerance are so intolerant against some views. It's so obvious that there's so much injustice in the world, but when Christ comes, all things will be made right, all things will be made new. Brothers and sisters, because of the gospel, that ha- all that has been accomplished in the gospel, and all that has been promised in the gospel, we have much reason, more reason than any others, to sing with great joy and I would contend if you're missing out on the joy it's not because it's not been provided but because you're not looking back at all that your God has done and not at the same time anticipating all that he has still promised will happen and maybe right now in the midst of this celebration in this season We're spending too much time thinking about all the horizontal issues and all the struggles of our day and all the difficulty we see and all the difficulty we feel, not thinking about the power God has proven and the promise that God will fulfill. So let me encourage you. Our present joy is established in the work our God has completed and it endures because of the promise of what our king will yet accomplish. You're going know, to walk out. You're going know, to walk into a world that is dark and difficult. And for a moment, you'll celebrate its families. You open presents. And you talk about the love that the season represents and the joy that the season represents. But the second hand keeps on ticking. And when Christmas is over, the increased debt has to be paid. The toys have to be taken care of. And many of them just lose their luster. Our king is coming. Something substantial to celebrate. So let's rejoice. And we'll start by praying. Father, we are grateful. Grateful that we can look into history and see your provision, see your power, see your protection. To see the closeness in which you have come, the the nearness that we truly can know that you are with us. And I'm grateful that you just didn't tell us a bunch of stories that wouldn't provide us any lasting benefit. that you come to set all things right. Jesus, I look for the day, I long for the day that my eyes can see you, my hands can touch you, and my feet can walk beside you. I pray that you'd fill us all with that anticipation and give us great joy because we know it's as certain as if it's already been accomplished. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.